during the last 60 years. Visit kpfa.org for more information on 60 Years, 60 Voices. And to become a member, join KPFA now at kpfa.org and celebrate 60 years of independent, listener-sponsored, free speech radio. And yes, it is KPFA Radio. That's 94.1 FM in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online and archived at www.kpfa.org. Next up, we have Jennifer Stone and Stone's Throw, followed by Free Speech Radio News, Hard Knock Radio, and then Flashpoints. Stay tuned. It's 3 o'clock. The ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up. In darkness From the ones Who Walk in light Light them up Boys There's your picture Drop the shadows Out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday, February the 17th, 2009. Oh, President uh, Barack Obama has hit the road. When he uh, entered the White House, he said he was so happy to be living over the store, could spend more time with his family. I see they haven't even got the dog, at least not that I've heard. Um, Obviously... He was not aware of the toxic atmosphere in Washington, D.C. He's out campaigning, you know. I think he's happier with the people rather than with the, uh, what do we call them, uh, the silverbacks. Oh, those guys. Anyway, Hillary's off to save the world. She got the same idea. She says she will listen, not lecture. Once she was asked why she thought people um, disliked her, why some people were turned off by her manner or her style. She said she thought that she must remind people of their social studies teacher or something like that. Um, you know, uh, the sort of woman who's a bit of a scold, someone who takes the moral high ground. Uh, I can identify... Anyway... She knows that Japan is uh, economically deeper into disaster than we are, so she can start there and commiserate, besides great photo ops. Then on to Indonesia. Now, I've been thinking that Hillary in Indonesia should be interesting. That is the country where President Barack Hussein Obama got his first big consciousness raising. That's where he lived. He was a little kid, nine, ten, running in the muddy streets. He said it was wonderful adventure. All the local urchins, you know, and he got um, 
Uh, I played soccer, got smacked. I was thinking Sukarno was in power. Those of us who get so much of our history from the movies, we think of the movie called The Year of Living Dangerously. Check that one out. Uh, Mel Gibson and, oh, God, I've forgotten the actress. Oh, oh, oh. My mind is melting. Anyway, it was all about Sukarno and the um, attempt at revolution and the American, uh, let's call it, uh, <laughs> let's call it our, our covert complicity, you know, um, same old, same old. Anyway, um, at this time, uh, little Barack Barry, he was called then, Little Barry didn't understand, of course, all these heavy political uh, machinations, but he seems to have had some intuition. Uh, he gets, he finally later on, of course, understands his new stepfather, Lolo. Uh, this man met his mom in Hawaii, and then after a year, he and his mom went out to join Lolo, and things had changed. Lolo... Uh, had lost, what is it, had lost his edge. Things had changed for him politically. Uh, I want to read you a little piece of Barack's story. Uh, the chapter in his book, Dreams from My Father, there's a chapter called Origins where he talks about this stepfather, this guy that his mom married when he was uh, a kid. This guy tried to teach him to fight, um, he, his, uh, new dad taught him, said the first thing to remember is how to protect yourself. And the mother is a little bit squeamish, but Lolo teaches, well, he, he kills a chicken and animals in front of, um, the boy saying he should know where his dinner's coming from, you know. And anyway, one day, Barack comes home bleeding with an egg-sized lump on the side of his head, uh, he writes, Lolo looked up from washing his motorcycle and asked me what happened. I told him about my tussle with an older boy who lived down the road. The boy had run off with my friend's soccer ball, I said. In the middle of our game, I chased after him and the boy picked up a rock. It wasn't fair, I said, my voice choking with aggrievement. He had cheated. Lolo parted my hair with his fingers and silently examined the wound. It's not bleeding, he said finally, before returning to his chrome. I thought that ended the matter, but uh, when he came home from work the next day, he had two pairs of boxing gloves. Uh, anyway, he goes on to describe the way Lolo teaches him how to uh, put up his fists and fight. At some point later, um, he is hurt enough to need to go to the hospital, and his... Um, Stepfather has had a few drinks and is not willing to make the effort to go with him to the hospital and his mom takes him there. She seems to feel that uh, stitches are needed and they are. And uh, he says this was a shift. Uh, his mother was, you know, um, well, she came to a certain point and finally sent him back to live in Hawaii with her folks. Uh her mother and father, where he went on to school. Uh, anyway, um, he says, It had taken me less than six months to learn Indonesia's language, its customs, 
and its legends. He had two years with this uh, stepfather. It's a lot more than he had with his own dad. Uh, so this guy must have imprinted him. Uh, he says, I had survived chicken pox, measles, the sting of my teacher's bamboo switches. I knew the children of farmers, servants, low-level bureaucrats. These were my best friends. We ran the streets morning and night. We hustled odd jobs, catching crickets and battling swift kites with razor-sharp lines. The loser watched his kite soar off with the wind, and we knew that somewhere other children had formed a long, wobbly train, their heads toward the sky, waiting for their prize to land. Anyway, he goes on to describe all the foods he learned to eat. Uh, small green chill peppers, raw, and plenty of rice. Anyway, I was introduced, he says, to dog meat, tough, snake meat, tougher, roasted grasshopper, crunchy. Like many Indonesians, Lolo followed a brand of Islam that could make room for the remnants of more ancient animist and Hindu faiths. He explained to me that a man took on the powers of whatever he ate. One day soon he promised he would bring home a piece of tiger meat for us to share. That's how things were, one long adventure, the bounty of a young boy's life. <laughs> Well, you know, it's that masculine thing. I'm interrupting Barack here. I I don't know. When you're a child, things are so different. I remember having nightmares at the same age around, uh, let's say, I was eight or nine. Oh, some bad times then. We had uh, Pearl Harbor and so forth. Uh, I remember dreaming about tigers coming to kill me at night. I remember... My father saying, oh, well, I can take care of that. And he went out in the backyard back on the, uh, we were in Tucson there where the uh, edge of the mountain. And he took his great big double barrel shotgun and he uh, blew a hole in a couple <laughs> of very large cacti. And then in the morning he told me that he had killed the tigers and he took me out there and showed me where he'd buried them. You know, it was a big deal. Anyway, I bought it. I think um, that's not quite the same story. He wasn't trying to show me how to do it. He was protecting me because I was a girl, right? Anyway, here is Barack having a wonderful time in Indonesia. Uh, he said that he couldn't write about uh, the things that he saw to his grandparents because they wouldn't understand. Uh, he said that... Uh, uh, they sent him civilizing packages of chocolate and peanut butter, but uh, uh, he says, I didn't tell Gramps and Toot about the face of the man who had come to our door one day with a gaping hole where his nose should have been, or the whistling sound he made as he asked my mother for food. Nor did I mention the time that one of my friends told me in the middle of recess that his baby brother had died the night before of an evil spirit brought in by the wind. The terror that danced in my friend's eyes for the briefest of moments, before he let out a strange laugh and punched my arm and broke off into a breathless run. There was the empty look on the faces of farmers the year the rains never came. 
the stoop in their shoulders as they wandered barefoot through their barren, cracked fields. "'bending over every so often to crumble earth between their fingers. "'Their desperation the following year when the rains lasted for over a month, "'swelling the river and fields until the streets gushed with water "'and swept as high as my waist and families scrambled to rescue their goats "'and their hens, even as chunks of their huts washed away.' The world was violent, I was learning, unpredictable and often cruel. My grandparents knew nothing about such a, a world. I decided no point in disturbing them with questions they couldn't answer. Footnote here. Uh, of course, once again, Barack had the limitations uh, of a child. His uh, grandfather, Gramps, uh, had been in World War II with Patton's army, so I guess maybe he had seen a few things. He goes on to write, Sometimes when my mother came home from work, I would tell her the things I had seen or heard, and she would stroke my forehead, listening intently, trying her best to explain what she could. I always appreciated the attention, her voice, the touch of her hand, defined all that was secure. However, her knowledge of floods and exorcisms and cockfights left much to be desired. Everything was as new to her as it was to me. Uh, I would leave such conversations feeling that my questions had only given her unnecessary cause for concern. So he goes on to say that he turned to his stepfather for guidance and instruction. Uh, on the other hand, uh, this guy was not, of course... Open with him, he, uh, what is it? He didn't feel the little boy would understand politics, of course. Uh, he taught him things like how to deal with beggars. They seem to be everywhere, a gallery of ills. Men, women, children, in tattered clothing matted with dirt. Some without arms, others without feet. Victims of scurvy or polio or leprosy walking on their hands, rolling down the crowded sidewalks in jerry-built carts, their legs twisted behind them like contortionists. At first, I watched my mother give over her money to anyone who stopped at our door or stretched out an arm as we passed on the streets. Later, when it became clear that the tide of pain was endless, she gave more selectively learning to calibrate the levels of misery. Lolo thought her moral calculations endearing, but silly. Whenever he caught me following her example with the few coins in my possession, he would raise his eyebrows and take me aside. He would ask, How much money do you have? I'd empty my pocket. Thirty rupiah. How many beggars are there on the street? I tried to imagine the number that had come by the house in the last week. You see, he said. Once it was clear, I'd lost count. Better to save your money. Make sure you don't end up on the street yourself. He was the same way about servants. They were mostly young villagers newly arrived in the city, often working for families not, not much better off than themselves, sending money to their people back in the country or saving enough to start their own businesses. If they had ambition, Lola was willing to help them get their start. He would generally tolerate their 
personal idiosyncrasies. For over a year, he employed a good-natured young man who liked to dress up as a woman on weekends. Lolo loved the man's cooking, but he would fire the servants without compunction if they were clumsy or forgetful or otherwise cost him money. He would be baffled when either my mother or I tried to protect them from his judgment. One day, uh, Lolo told me, your mother has a soft heart. Uh, she tried to take the blame for knocking a radio off the dresser. He said, that's a good thing in a woman. But you will be a man someday. A man needs to have more sense. It had nothing to do with good or bad, he explained, like or dislike. It was a matter of taking life on its own terms. I've been thinking about this section of the book and reading over it and wondering and wondering in my mind just how our president feels about Afghanistan, about Pakistan, about the Middle East, about the people in those countries. And obviously, he is not ignorant. He's not uh, blithering dimwit the way the last fellow was. You, you know, um, I don't think that President Bush even had a passport. He never went anywhere. But Oh, I don't know. Um, oh, we know that Barack Obama is a pragmatist, but we also know that he, uh, well, he's in this position. He's the president of the United States. Um, He's not a priest or a, well, he's a poet in this book, but I don't know. I listened this morning to the news and I listened to the woman who had been made, well, she's minister in Iraq. She's supposed to look after uh, women's interests, you know, uh, a member of the Iraqi um, uh, inner circle or cabinet. Anyway, they gave her... They gave her $7,500 a month to take care of women's needs. And then they decided that that was uh, excessive. So they cut it down to $1,500. $1,500. This is a ministry. Now, if you live here in the United States, you know that $1,500 is scarcely enough to support one woman for a month. Uh, she quit her job, and now they're trying to get her to go back. Um, a lot of women have volunteered, offered to help, but uh, I remember cutting out all these cartoons back uh, when when Afghanistan was first liberated, you remember? It said, where shall we turn? Where shall we go to find uh, the new the new uh, executors, the new uh, caretakers for this society and uh, somebody said step right up ladies and you see this fleet of women in uh, burkas and so forth anyway uh, obviously um, that was then this is now so many projects uh, I've read about that you know they they got stuck in a committee in congress uh, you know, a school here or there, all of the infrastructure of Afghanistan that was supposed to be fixed, you know, that was to be our, uh, what is it, our theme park there. But, of course, um, the money, the money was not forthcoming. Perhaps Hillary Clinton can make a move. She said 
that she hoped that the appropriations committees uh, would be forthcoming. I keep looking at my list of statistics and noticing, as I keep saying, Hillary's State Department has one-thirteenth the amount of money that the Defense Department has. So, gosh knows whether the Congress will give her the cash to be a lady bountiful in Afghanistan. Uh, this Thursday morning and maybe next week, I wanted to read some bits to you from a book, a play I've been reading by Tony Kushner called Homebody Cabal. It's a fascinating study, very experimental play, kind of hard to do uh, on the radio. It's about a woman in London and a woman in, in Afghanistan. They kind of trade places. Um, the play is surreal, very difficult to sum up. But basically, the idea is that those of us in the West, uh, we need to understand the language of those in the East the Afghan world. I remember the first bombings uh, when we first bombed over there. Some of the local Afghan uh, women and a poet, uh, they came here to KPFA and their heartfelt, uh, their emotional, their passion, their pain was just palpable. Got me all shook up and then I realized that like... uh, like Barack Obama here, um, there wasn't much that I personally could do. I remember helping put together a, an evening at the Berkeley Community Theater, and um, I got a wonderful course in the culture of Afghanistan. That is the first step, of course, the first, first, uh, what is it, the reaching out, the learning who these people are, and uh, yes, in the play, <clears throat> the woman in London keeps reading these um, cockeyed, out-of-date, old-fashioned guidebooks to Afghanistan. Uh, and they start, of course, in 3000 BC, the ancient world of Mesopotamia. Anyway, I'm going to go back here for a minute, just for a minute, to Barack Obama's book, the chapter called Origins uh He has a few very telling moments. Um, He asks his stepfather, he says, Have you ever seen a man killed? He glanced down, surprised by my question. Have you, I asked again. Yes, he said. Was it bloody? Yes. I thought for a moment, why was the man killed, the one you saw? Because he was weak. That's all? Lolo shrugged. That's usually enough. Men take advantage of weakness in other men. They just, they're just like countries in that way. The strong man takes the weak man's land. He makes the weak man work in his fields. If the weak man's woman is pretty, the strong man will take her. He paused to take another sip of water and then asked, Which would you rather be? I didn't answer. Lolo squinted up at the sky. Better to be strong, he said finally. If you can't be strong, be clever. And make peace with someone who's strong. 
but always better to be strong yourself. Always. <laughs> if you can't be good, be clever, as my mother used to say. Anyway, uh, this chapter's wonderful. It goes on to speak of his mother's loneliness and her inability really to integrate into this um, society. She finally uh, comes face to face with power. Barack Obama writes, Power, the word fixed in my mother's mind like a curse. In America, it had generally remained hidden from view until you dug beneath the surface of things, until you visited an Indian reservation or spoke to a black person whose trust you had earned. But here, that is in Indonesia, power was undisguised, indiscriminate, naked, always fresh in the memory. Power had taken Lolo and yanked him back into line, just when he thought he'd escaped, making him feel its weight, letting him know that his life wasn't his own. That's how things were. You couldn't change it. You could just live by the rules. So simple once you learned them. So Lolo had made his peace with power, learned the wisdom of forgetting, just as his brother-in-law had done. The story of his brother-in-law is... Rather grim, yes. Uh, his brother-in-law was making millions as a high official in the National Oil Company. Uh, another brother had tried to do that, only he had miscalculated and was now reduced to stealing pieces of silverware whenever he came for a visit, selling them later for loose cigarettes. Okay. Barack's mother... Uh, remembers what Lolo had told her once when her constant questioning finally touched a nerve. He had said, guilt is a luxury only foreigners can afford. Like saying whatever pops into your head. She didn't know what it was like to lose everything to wake up and feel her belly eating itself. She didn't know how crowded and treacherous the path to security could be. Without absolute concentration, one could easily slip and tumble backward. He was right, of course. She was a foreigner, middle class, white, protected by her heredity, whether she wanted protection or not. She could always leave if things got too messy. That possibility negated anything she might say to Lolo. That was the unbreachable barrier between them. She goes on. Uh, this paragraph goes on to explain his mother's feelings and uh, her panic. She began to fear that power was taking her son. Anyway, he goes on to explain a little bit more about his stepfather, who has since um, died, the mother, uh, Stanley Ann Dunham. People don't remember Barack's mother's name. Stanley Ann Dunham tried to help him later. Um, they had separated. She tried to help him uh, during his last illness. Um, anyway, she did come to understand that uh, these were not her people. Um, she had also, what is it, uh, tried to teach him, what is that, uh, to be objective about Americans, uh, he said, she encouraged my rapid acculturation in Indonesia, 
that had made me self-sufficient, undemanding, on a tight budget, and extremely well-mannered compared to the American children. She had taught me to disdain the ignorance and arrogance that too often characterized Americans abroad. But she now had learned the chasm that separated the life chances of an American from those of an Indonesian. She knew which side of the divide she wanted her child to be on. I was an American, she decided, and my true life lay elsewhere. Let's face it, folks. Barack is a realist, and he knows what he needs to know. Let us hope that he acts accordingly. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. There's your picture, drop the shadow, out of sight. From the best of KPFA's fun drive, the DVD, The Century of Self. The publication of Freud's works in America had an extraordinary effect on journalists and intellectuals in the 1920s. What fascinated and frightened them was the picture Freud painted of submerged, dangerous forces lurking just under the surface of modern society. The leading political writer, Walter Lippmann, argued that if human beings were in reality driven by unconscious, irrational forces, then it was necessary to rethink democracy. You can get this and other thank you gifts offered this past fund drive by logging into kpfa.org. KPFA. 60 years of free speech radio because of you, our listeners. Visit kpfa.org today.